Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My friend, how are you? Hey, Ken, how you doing, mate? Sorry, the last one ran over a second. I'm sorry for being late. Oh no, don't you worry about that. What time is it where you are now? Eight thirty-four a.m. I admire it, my friend. I mean, I was thinking it was early UK time for an oh. interview, and uh, <laughs> it's oh, it's very, very rare you get to chat to bands before nine in the morning. Oh, I get I get three kids, man. I'm you know, I'm I'm a morning guy. You're up and at them. Yeah. I was reading an interview that said um, you guys used to rehearse at the crack of dawn as well yeah. back in the day. And the guy who ran the space was like, in all my years, I've never <laughs> seen this. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he was scratching his head a lot, but it made us feel like we had a real job, which is ironic because, you know, most people go to music to get away from a real job. And um, I feel like we, we were just raised in that kind of way of like, you better get up and go to work. <laughs> so like, we were able to do something we love, but if we did it at those hours, we still felt like uh, respectable human beings. Yeah, and, and when you work hard at something, that's what helps you elevate whatever it is you're doing, and you know takes you to where you want to get to. Right? Is the work yeah. ethic? 
Yeah, and it also helped, by the way, that you know we were in one of those kind of jam spot rehearsal spaces with you know everyone's got their own closet, you know, and 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 we used to even even when we were back then we used to like to write uh, acoustic in the beginning just so you could hear what everyone's doing more and you know we when we tried to have these practices at night we'd come in and we're just about to start the first song and you know you'd hear you know like uh some metal band starting up beside you and drown you out you know so um that was another benefit of practicing at 7 a.m you know no one else was going to be there so (laughs) yeah as a singer it means you're not blowing out your voice as well (laughs) and then the other thing that would happen is you'd write a good riff and then all of a sudden you'd Five minutes later, you'd hear the band in the uh, space next to you play a very similar riff. You'd be like, what the fuck? (laughs) It's funny, in the last year, um, you know, there's obviously been a lot going on, which we can talk about at some point, I'm sure. But you are the band I've seen the most perform live in the last 12 months. That's not saying a lot. It's twice. (laughs) Um, But I watched the Fenway stream and your most recent St. Patrick's Day one. And what was really cool um, not just the, I mean, the, the Fenway thing was still, I think, my favorite live stream of this whole period. It was just, you know, not just the location and the way you used the space, but the the day and the lead up to the show when you, you know, I guess took the, the film crew around and taught people yeah, about yeah. the history of the place. Um, it was amazing. It was like a documentary and a concert in one. But what I loved was getting an insight into your worlds because I've only ever seen the Dropkicks live in the UK over the years and a a good friend of mine kaylee is a big big fan of your band and she goes out to boston a lot um she's a big fan of baseball as well but she goes out to watch baseball games and see you guys play when you play out there and and she always says like you know you can see the dropkick murphys anywhere else in the world but when you see them on home soil it's a whole different experience now i obviously wasn't there but I, i got a window into your world from particularly the fenway show and I absolutely loved it. And it's it's clear that you guys have always been cultural ambassadors for Boston. Um, is that a conscious thing that you've always set out to do from day one? Or is it just it's in you and it's who you are? Um, well, getting back to the, the on your senior on our own soil on the family show, we literally were on our own soil because that was on the grass you know <laughs> yeah like, where do you want to build the stage i said stage there's no fans i want to be on the grass you know and on the dirt uh so i think that's what made that show so special that we were like legit you know they had never let when they have concerts there they they totally um rope off that infield they don't they don't want anyone to even walk across that let alone a concert we played on it so that was a first so we felt honored that they kind of you know, you know, and the reason that for that is that that's such the most manicured part. And, you know, when there's concerts, there's usually the teams away on a road trip for a week, but they're coming right back. And those games are on TV and that groundskeeper better have it looking good. So obviously in the pandemic, we didn't they didn't have a looming, you know, uh, game coming up. But uh, I know Kaylee, she's the best. Um, and um, I think what she's probably referring to. And I think what makes it different when we play at home is the fact that friends and family are there. And, um, and also some of the, um, some of the people that travel like that, that are like the most diehard supporters, that front row, I'll look out in the front row on the barricade and I'll see someone from 
Ireland, Germany, England, and then I'll see like my neighbor and someone I grew up with and, and my kids are on the back of the stage and it's just like, that gives you goosebumps. You know what I mean? You're just like hearing the back of your neck stands up like, wow, this is cool. It's like, it's almost like this is your life. Everyone comes to you, you know? And it's one of the things about traveling so much is you miss a lot of stuff. You're missing wakes and funerals and weddings and birthday parties. And when, so when you get to have like, hometown shows and everyone's coming it's a it's a special feeling so um as far as being ambassadors for it i i don't think we're trying to do that it's just um from the very earliest days of the band the boston punk scene was just so great in the mid 90s and um bands like dropkicks the trouble the ducky boys the unseen showcase showdown we were all selling out this club called the rat which was like our version of cbgb's and all and we would all host these like all ages eight band matinees we'd headline we'd give seven bands from seven other northeast cities all the money and then they'd owe us a show you know and it was always out like oh boston's better than your scene and oh they want they had such a good show there. When we came to their city, they wanted their scene to look good. So they would do whatever they had to do to fill the place for when we came back. So there was a little bit of that like friendly rivalry of like Boston. So that's where we kind of started that like carrying the torch for Boston, you know what I mean? And, and it was more of like a punk rivalry versus New York and Philly and DC and, you know, things like that. And then, and then I think we just, you know, that's just who we are and that's just what we kept doing, you know, in a different way. It's not like we're coming to London saying, yeah, Boston's got a better scene than London is because it's just too different. It, you know, it's a different animal at that point. But, um, but that's where I think that mentality came from. I love it. I think it's really great and, and quite rare to see a band that has hometown pride of that level. Um, I've never been, I'd love to go. And it's always fascinated me as a place because and maybe you could shed some light and educate me on this, but it seems like obviously you have the higher education history there, and it seems to be one of like the world's leading places for universities and academia. And then you also have on the flip side of that, like, you know, poverty and hardworking people and um, crime and, you know, like a, a great union history. And there's all these different qualities which seem to on paper sit in, you know, opposites from each other, but yet, seem to all happily coexist in the location and place. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, it's different worlds. I mean, most obviously the university students are coming from someplace else, but as much as the blue collar side of Boston has nothing to do with the university side, uh, there is a bit of a pride in our university side. You know what I mean? It's like, um, yeah, cause it makes, I mean, you know, as much as the university side is not my history, uh, it's what makes Boston, it's part of what makes Boston such a special place, you know, and as they, as they call it the hub of the universe, they call it the hub, you know, and not obviously because it's a jumping off point for, for Europeans arriving here for uh, travel to Europe for shipping, but it's also the fact that, like you said, hospitals, world-class hospitals, world-class universities, big, big tech now. And, and like, and it's also got that history of 
hard scrabble kind of stick togetherness, you know. So it's it's a very unique place. And um yeah, I couldn't see the dropkick Murphys coming out of anywhere else, you know. What's the song on the new record, City by the Sea? What a song that is. So the so Boston has this like um a bit of a jaded, you know, you kind of it's like you you love it and it's home but at the same time people have a bit of a um people can be assholes there too you know what i mean and it's like you love it and then you go sometimes you go why do i love it so much you know um, so um but it, it, that one's kind of about our, our, us touring and missing home and kind of some stuff of just yeah just like you're hearing stories about stuff that happened when you're home and then you get home and someone says something shitty and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why was I missing this place? You know, but as it says in the song, people tell it like it is, you know, everyone remembers, but nobody forgives. We're grudge holders, you know? So. You obviously worked in, um, what was the name of the bar you were working in when you started the band? Is it still around that bar? That bar? That's a lot of water right there, Ken. Yeah, it is. I, I, I broke this out in front of someone else in the UK and they fucking lost their shit. They were like, we don't, oh no, it was a French guy. He's like, we don't have bottles that big. Got to stay hydrated. I mean, like it literally derailed his interview. All he could think about was the bottle. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so well, to, on the um, subject of hydration, um, <laughs> yeah, is is the bar that you used to work at when you started the band? Is that still around? It it is still around because it's uh, it, it actually wasn't a bar; it was actually Symphony Hall. Because uh, I was going, uh, I was actually um, going to school. Uh, my my father in law was uh, a union president, so I was working for him. I was going to UMass Boston to get my teaching degree. And I was bartending at Symphony Hall, which is an amazing job, especially if you're going to be a teacher because Symphony Hall closes in the summer. And so, you know, everyone that worked there was a teacher because you'd work the two jobs during the year and then you'd have summers off from both. You know, I was chasing the endless summer. Yeah. And, uh, Without leaving town. Yeah. And nobody left uh, that job. I mean, I got I was a fill in and I got my job my bar there because uh, you know a guy in his 80s died so uh and one of the other fill-in bartenders went to berkeley college of music and i was very involved in the in the scene like booking shows at the rap but i wasn't in a band and i always talked about wanting to be uh in a band but just not like a band playing in front of people just doing covers in a basement type of thing and um and he said, I get it. My band has a show in three weeks. I dare you to open for us. And that's, that's how it started. And, uh, um, I would go back there, man. That was such a good job that I would go back there and, uh, you know, 10 years into touring, but like, you still holding my job, you know? And, uh, and they actually redid, um, they redid all the bars very recently. And in the closet where everyone keeps their like work clothes, their like pants and shirt for the job, they found, my pair of pants that was in there like 20 something years of everyone <laughs> yeah. just assuming it was someone else's, you know, and yeah, said, yeah, yeah. That's a long time. But, um, and it was, it was very cool because we got to do something. There was an event at Fenway at Symphony hall, um, celebrating the Red Sox, uh, sorry, celebrating Fenway's hundredth anniversary. 
and they did an event there and we played with the, the Boston Pops, which is like, I don't know the difference, the symphony, you know, the Pops is the one that's got the horns. It's a little more lively than just the symphony. And we, we collaborated with them and I got to tell the story of like, hey, I'm here now, but the band started right outside that door at that bar. So it was pretty cool how it all come full circle, you know? Amazing history. What's always been really cool about your band as well is, you know, you're obviously firmly in the punk community, but then it seems like the sports communities really embrace the bands, the bar community. Does that again just come from everybody in the band when you started all being from that area and everybody kind of knows somebody in the band and it's just that community spirit because it seems like yeah. you tick all the boxes and you know like you can be a, a family friendly show for all ages but yet the hardcore punks can you know throw down as well it's got it all yeah it's also what leads to our guest list being completely out of control <laughs> I'll, I'll, bet. <laughs> I'll bet do you even make any money from the boston shows you play <laughs> no, we, we got a new, we got a new manager about maybe 12 years ago and he was like the first thing we got to do is address the size of the hometown guest list. I said, <laughs> I said, buddy, you just got on a ship that sailed a long time ago. There ain't no change in that. You try telling my friends they can't be on the guest list anymore. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, everyone's got a cousin. I have cousins I never knew I had, you know, which means they're not my cousins, but they say they are. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you grow up around Irish music? Like, was that influence always there? Yeah, no. yeah def no, definitely. Um, but I always just thought, you know, you, you knew every traditional Irish song by osmosis, by heart. But I always just thought of it as another generation's music. You know, oh, that's for that's fun songs at a party. I get it. Yeah, yeah, I know the songs, but they're not they're not my songs, you know. And then, you know, I was probably 13 or 14 when the Pogues came, you know, came along and it was just like, whoa. Changed everything. Okay. Oh, my grandparents' music is cool. You know, and uh, that changed everything, yeah. Have you seen The Crock of Gold, the new film about Shane? I haven't, and I've heard it's great, yeah. It's, so. it's, it's really good. I mean, it's, it's kind of sad in places because, you know, he obviously he, he, his life is, although he's a great talent, there's, you know, it's laced with tragedy, isn't it? And, yeah, and you yeah. sort of see how sick he is now, and it's a bit of a bummer, but, you know, you just really get an insight into what a truly unique songwriter and poet and, and, yeah. and cultural figure he is. How was it working with Shane early on in your career? That must have been one hell of a a dream come true moment to get to collaborate with him. Yeah, actually, I think it's uh, on YouTube. If you look for it, my job in the studio was when he came and did, to sing with us uh, on an album, he was in front of the um, mic waiting for his uh, line to come, but he had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and he had no intention. I guess the cigarette would have just dropped on the floor. So my job was to kind of point like, okay, now it's your turn to sing. And at the same time, snatch the cigarette out of his mouth and, uh, so, you know, there's not many people can say that they had to do that with Shane, you know, and uh, but he was he, he was great. I uh, The very first time I met Shane, we were doing this uh, festival in Boston that Guinness was sponsoring. And it was like Van Morrison, Elvis Costello, Shane McGowan and the Popes, Dropkick Murphys is probably 1997 or something. So wow. I bring I bring a bunch of old singles with me to get signed and I and I bump into Elvis first and I have Elvis sign all my old Elvis singles and he at the time was married to Kate O'Riordan from the Pogues and uh so as she's standing there I say well Kate 
will you sign these? And I wasn't even planning on having her sign the signals. I wasn't even thinking about that. She's standing right there. I said, will you, will you sign these? So she, she signs the Pogue single she was on. And then I come to Shane later and I say, Shane, will you sign my singles? And he says, yeah, no problem. And he, he looks at him and he sees her name and apparently they must have not had a good ending because uh, he's like, I won't sign anything that this blah, blah, blah is on. And then he and then he eventually says, fuck it, give me the pen. And he signs and he writes to Ken, you fucking wanker. Because uh, <laughs> he was bullshit that she had signed them first. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of my prize autographs. Like, you know, anyone can just have Shane McGowan, but two can you fucking wanker. That's pretty good, you know? So incredible. And uh Joe Strummer as well. Like, I guess the clash would have been a huge influence on you and getting to huge influence and got to spend some time with Joe, you know, met him through um, you know, he eventually came on to Epitaph with the Mescaleros and we were on Hellcat and uh my first time meeting Joe, he was playing Boston with the Mescaleros and we were coming back from Australia and I flew straight back from Australia, got out of the, got home in the airport, went straight to the gig. I mean, I was fried. My eyes were just rolling in the back of my head. I was out of it and, uh, you know, walked into the dressing room and, you know, big hug and just tr treated like family. A guy was, man, he was the real deal. You know, just, I, I often say like, um, you know, certain people, Springsteen, Strum, Strumma, if they weren't who you were, had imagined they were, were all those years, you'd have to throw their records away. Do you know what I mean? And and they really lived up to the hype in my mind of how I thought they'd be there. There was just, just such down to earth people. Joe was so down to earth and it's so awesome when, you know, you meet your idols and they're actually cool, you know? I've heard nothing but good And then things. for every one of those, you get a guy that writes, you wanker. <laughs> but, but Shane, Shane is kind of like, yeah, you want, you know, you want Shane to kind of be bitter. You know what I mean? It's, uh, I don't know, it goes with the image, you know? Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. And I, all I've heard from Joe is, well, not from Joe, but about Joe is that he just had such generosity, as you say, like he was so welcoming and warm to everybody that he met. Um, and just, you know, if you didn't know him and know who he was, you just think, oh, this is just a regular nice dude, so down to earth. Yeah, and by the way, you know, he wasn't just being nice because we were, you know, in the Dropkick Murphys. Like he, there's many stories I know, you know, he'd he come to Boston, whether it was the old days with the Clash or, or on his own, and uh, he'd end up going to the bar and hanging out with not the so-and-sos of other bands. He'd, he'd, he'd go with some kids that were the first ones hanging out in front of the show when he arrived, you know what I mean? And he'd go out with them afterwards. He was just man of the people, you know? Are you still a drinker yourself, Ken? Do you no, still? No, uh, 30 years. Uh, next Wednesday will be 30 years since I've had a drink. So uh, I wow. quit when I was 21. Um, so Dropkick Murphys wouldn't, wouldn't have got uh, far off the ground. Uh, <laughs> you know, a uh, matter of fact, one of the kind of legends that, uh, you know, sober kind of legends, you know, sober forever, uh, old timer that uh, helped me turn my life around. Uh, the band's first gig which we viewed as kind of a practice was his 60th birthday party. So how many punk bands can say they paid a 60th birthday party? And he just died uh, last week, Bill Daly. And uh, he was, you know, 49 years sober at the time. And uh, he, 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 him and another guy that helped help me uh, were on a couple of the early record covers and they would just get such a kick out of, uh, you know, the whole 
thing and they come to the shows and so uh yeah so that's so as much as you know a lot of the kind of sometimes misconception about uh you know dropkick murphy's you know drinking music and teach his own i've never judged anybody like but a lot of the songs like that are about about my old days of drinking and a lot of them are actually about the struggles i had with them but typical of, of people of irish descent and many others is like you know you think of all the sad depressing songs about death and destruction and you know the irish will sing it with a, like a, it's a rowdy anthem you know what i mean so like you know the first song we ever wrote barroom hero was about you know one of my friends who just never changed and you know died a, a miserable death you know being who's a legend in the bar everyone looked up to him but they didn't look up to him many other places and uh but people take that as one of our <laughs> biggest drinking anthems and so be it i don't tell people how to listen to our music you know what i mean so um but that's an often overlooked side of the band and the matter of fact dropkick murphy's itself talk about boston history was uh you know, it was a, a place that people would go to dry out. There was a guy named John Murphy and his nickname was Dropkick. So drop, oh, you're going to Dropkick Murphy to dry out. It wasn't some like 12 step type of place. It was a, he would literally help people taper down. Like if you couldn't stop drinking, you go and he'd give you, you know, three drinks an hour for your first day. And then, you know, or, or whatever, you know, and then, you know, and over the course of five days, he was doing with like a taper down and alcohol, what hospitals are doing now with Librium and other drugs, you know what I mean? So, um, so there's a connection to, to that, even, even in the band's name, you know? Well, first of all, Ken, um, sorry for, for your loss and, and congratulations on, on almost hitting 30 years. That's amazing. Um, and yeah, I find that a really, inspiring and fascinating part of your mythology and history and identity and all of that is because you know you do celebrate that side of life obviously i know you owned and, and ran a bar for well up until last year and covid you know took it out of business mcgreevy's but it's if i look at bars and pubs particularly here in the uk um and islands as these kind of places of communal gathering right that they're, they're, they're like the churches of the communities in many ways and although alcohol has you know destroyed many people's lives and had negative impacts on many people's lives there is also a, a beauty and a romance and a, and a family warmth to these you know watering holes as places of congregation and meeting isn't there and as you say stories and song um and I love that about the band, you know, there's, there's the struggle and the pain has always been there alongside the celebration and the. Yeah. And I've always, I've never been one to, you know, my, my, what I say to people is if, if you can drink, have one for me, cause I can't, you know, and, but, but in terms of like running a bar, it's like, you know, that was a community place. It was a baseball bar. There was history. We had music. We had good food, you know, the bars that I drank in, you know, had no windows, you know what I mean? And, you know, you know there wasn't, there wasn't a, a good atmosphere that was, uh, you know, watch your back, you know, so a it's desperate like, one. Yeah. Yeah. There's a difference. You know, there's a difference, you know. Were there some good characters, some good locals at McGreevy's oh, yeah, that, yeah, that gave the place color? And... Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's some good songs. There's some good, good, uh, good influence for, for songs. That's for sure. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Aerosmith, did you play with them? Yeah, Obviously we did. From, from Boston as well. Yeah, we did one gig with them, yeah. Didn't end well. No? What happened? Steven Tyler threw a shit fit because we had the, we had the Boston college marching band, uh, join us on stage, you know, with the brass section and everything. And he saw us doing that at soundcheck and threw a hissy fit. It was right when they all had their like relapse, you know, and they were not really, I, I feel bad that that's kind of when I met Aerosmith during that. Cause they're probably much nicer guys, but they were having a lot of dysfunction at the time. And we had just come off our first time, meeting and playing with Bruce who's just like you're backstage and Bruce's thing is there's no the dress other than the one room where Bruce changes it's all open the carpenters who built the stage are eating with Bruce and his mother and it's just it's just like a punk show would be where it's just there's no there's no hierarchy there's no division and then we go and we open for Aerosmith and it was like, do you have a, but don't go there. That's the Joe Perry area. You can't go there. That's it. You know, it's just like, you know, strippers, limos, helicopters. It was just like rock chaos, you know? And we were like, holy shit, what is even happening here? And um, so at Soundcheck, we were soundchecking with the BC band and Steven Tyler came out and <coughs> got wind of that. And he just flipped out you know that the opening band was trying to upstage i said upstage you you're fucking aerosmith and you know you have we have like a postage stamp size stage to play on do, and, do not go over the line yeah yeah and you have you know a spaceship on top of you for lights and it's just like i said you know but it was interesting to kind of be that insecure about it but i but like i said they were all in the middle of that like relapse they had and I, you know so in some ways, I, you know, I kind of had uh, sympathy for him in a way, like felt bad for him, you know, and so I think they all got it back together now, though, so it's good. Yeah, it's amazing they're still going, really. Them and the, sto- <coughs> them oh, and the Stones yeah. and ACDC, you look at bands Un- like that and you just think, like... Unbelievable. <laughs> Un- and, you know, you look at, like, Jagger running, and but look at Bruce. I mean, he's a little younger than them, but, but he, he's, I mean, you know, I mean, Mick... I mean, that, those stages aren't small and like Jagger's running from end to end. I mean, it's amazing. Someone's going to break a hip up there. 
<laughs> they'll be playing till they they drop. I think they're they're one of those bands that I think are incapable of retiring or taking their foot off the yeah. gas. Um, ACDC for you guys. I know that if people aren't familiar with both bands, they might not think that the influence is there. But for me, as somebody who loves ACDC and loves what you guys do, I mean, you are kind of like the ACDC of of Celtic punk, if you'd excuse the crass analogy. Like, are they a band that have been an important rock and roll influence on you guys? And would you love to play with them? Surely that would be like the dream, right? That's kind of really all that's left on the list for us. You know what I mean? Of people that we'd be like, oh. So that would be huge. Although if you're opening for ACDC, it would be strictly for your own joy because they're one of those bands that no one's going to see the opening act when they go see ACDC, you know? Tough and fan that, base to that, please, yeah. That's why Springsteen doesn't even really have opening acts. One, he plays for four hours. And two, you know, why put the opening act through that? No one's going to be there, you know? Um, but I'd do it anyway, even if no one was in the room, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, ACDC is definitely... Um, you know, I think I think you hear it in our music. You know, our original guitar player, Rick Barton, was you know, I mean, you know, just just that you know pure you know Marshall eight hundred sound. Just it's got to sound like it's got those notes need to ring out like ACDC would always just say that, and he was just so into that the sound that they that they had, you know, and um and uh, but but then if you also want to talk about when you say well we're like the you know you. They also didn't, they also stayed what they were and just kept doing what they're doing. You know what I mean? And so many bands, you know, that second wave of British punk that all of a sudden, another, oh, I love this. And now, whoa, 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 there's keyboards on the next album. What the fuck happened there? You know, or all the Boston hardcore bands that we grew up with and who tried to become metal. Uh, and I don't mean metal like, you know, uh, double bass pedal. I mean, like, uh, hair metal you know like back in the 80s like wait what you know so jump so, jumping on the bandwagons isn't it yeah yeah so it's like uh it's something about the that like uh reliability of acdc is not gonna flip the switch on you you know what i mean not gonna put out an acoustic album yeah and and you guys have always had that but what i love is that you can do the rowdy like all the way up to 11 you know, rock and roll banger, and then you can really take it down and do almost a ballad and it still fits your style and it sounds amazing. This new album, Ken, I think is the best record you've done since The Warriors Code. I think it's so good. Um, it's obviously come at a time when there's so much to be, be, funnily enough, I think be grateful for. You know, we've obviously lost so much in this last year, but it's in these times of great struggle and you know when you're presented with life and death situations and and you are alive and you you know you have your health and i mean talk let's talk a little bit about this new record because um i do really think it's the best thing you've done in you know 15 odd <laughs> years it's so good um did you start any of it before the pandemic or was this like a purely pandemic record no it, it started uh in the uh late end of 2019 and we had already had that mindset of like we want to we want to write like an inspiring uplifting album partially because you know we're just so beaten down by the trump era and two um the last album was a little heavy for us not that the songs are necessarily all like that but the inspiration had a lot to do with you know losing a lot of friends to the opioid epidemic and how many people 
dying of overdose deaths and, you know, and I'm not by any means a COVID denier, uh, but I will say that, you know, uh, I've known two people that have died of COVID in the year and I've, I've known a lot more people that have died of opiate overdose deaths. So where is the news for them? You know, I'm not saying that everything that's happening with COVID isn't real and doesn't deserve the news, but why does the other thing not, you know? Well, uh, I had Al on the show. I'd only just launched this podcast. Al was my second ever guest on, and it was exactly around that time. Um, and he was saying he lost his brother-in-law. I think he said you just lost somebody recently as well when you were doing that press trip. And he said everybody in the band like knows somebody that has lost someone. Um, yeah. And he, he really educated me on the severity of that situation. And as yeah. you say, like it's not being covered. It's not in the news. Certainly not in the UK. We're not aware of that. Um, yeah tragic yeah so after that and that happens to us a lot with albums when when one goes one way i think you gravitate sometimes it's not by design this was by design because we're like man what's this like let's put a smile on people's faces or let's get them charged up you know what i mean and um you know so there's 10 songs that we feel do that and then you know wish you were here which is a ballad you know about al's dad's passing um but also very fitting to the time as a tribute to all the people that have passed from COVID and also, you know, the fact that grandma, grandparents aren't seeing their grandkids, families aren't getting together. So, uh, so we felt like it was like 10 songs of turn up the dial and then, up, you know, the ballad being last being like the potting, like, you know, tip of the cap to acknowledge what's happened, you know, because I mean, we've never put, we've never ended an album with a ballad before. So, but it felt like that's exactly where it belonged, you know, to just kind of sign off, you know. Yeah, well, I don't think if you'd have put it anywhere else, there would have been anywhere to go after that song, right? Yeah, because yeah, it's a nice, and I've I've been reading. I very rarely do this, but I thought with a song like that, it's definitely worth doing. And I've been reading the YouTube comments on the video for that song, and they're all so touching people sharing their stories about, you know, loved ones they've lost and how this song has affected and impacted them. Uh, a beautiful song, and it's obviously been going over so well with everybody. And as you say, it can either be directly about a personal loss that you've had in your family, or it can just be about this whole worldwide loss that we've all experienced through the last 12 months of, of COVID-19. Was it a weird album to make? Because obviously you kind of, and it must have been quite a, a poignant one because you're making all these songs about living life and being grateful and triumphant and, and you're doing it in this, uh, you know, scenario of not being able to be in the room together. It must have been a very surreal, but I guess equally important and life affirming, a very key time experience, right? It was surreal, but it gave like, I guess you never, you know, like they'll say like, you never appreciate something fully until it's taken away, you know? So it's like, when you're singing about camaraderie and getting together and lifting spirits, well, if you're trying to do that in good times anyway, when you're all together, it maybe doesn't have the same emotional impact of one. Fuck, someone took it away, you know? And so doing this record in shifts and one at a time, it was like, yeah, it was like maybe thinking back to those better days and thinking forward to those better days again. So it, yeah, it had a surreal um, ability to give it almost more of an impact and make it feel more important or more powerful, you know, not that what we're doing is, you know, you're going to 
change the earth's access by any means, but you know, in our world, it, it yeah, it felt, felt important, you know. A song like Chosen Few, tell me about that one. That hit home for me, especially on a lyrical point of view. It's like a very much a call to arms to your nation, right? At this time. Yeah, it was about, it really was, it, it, the song's really about the outside world's view of us, you know, like what, what, you know, America, you know, love it, love it or not was viewed as a leader, you know, and something that maybe the world could look to or rely on. And, um, and now we're fighting like cats and dogs, you know, lifelong friends don't talk anymore. Um, you know, people across the dinner table on holidays are fighting all over, you know, the division that this snake oil salesman created. And, um, you know, and it was just kind of like, Hey, like the call was really like, what's like, we, we, we got to get unified again. We gotta, we gotta take the, the, the tone down. We gotta like get along again, you know, like, cause nothing's going to change when we're just, you know, so walled up against each other. And, uh, you know, to me, we're really letting, um, you know, I love what Joe Biden said. And, you know, I'm not someone to wave a flag for any politician, but he did a press conference yesterday and they were saying, you know, how do you feel about, you know, the Republicans are so much against you. And he said, the Republicans aren't so much against me. The Republicans in office are so much against me, but the people uh, supporting what I'm doing, meaning that the American people, you know, Biden's uh, popularity right now and the fact that he's doing a good job to try to bring us out of this situation and try to bring back some decency and respect. But yeah, there's, you know, these senators and congressmen on the right that they don't reflect America. They, re they reflect fucking crazy. If you look what happened at, at the uh, at the Capitol on January 6th, you saw those people and you're like, look at America, it's ready to be overthrown. No, that was like, that was like a juggalo festival. You know what I mean? You it's exactly every, what it looked like, yeah. You took every freak out of the backwoods of Alabama or wherever and they came because then, you, then if you recall on the day Biden was inaugurated, they were thinking, there's going to be more of this at state capitals that aren't protected like this. And they went around to the states and there was like one guy with a flag. You know what I mean? It's like that, that what happened that day was the result of them calling every extremist around the country to one place. So that, that didn't reflect, you know, how I don't think that reflected America, you know, and, and I don't even think that reflected the republic, you know, the, the average Republican, you know, um, you know, the media, you know, they want to show, they want to feed into the division, you know. It's the so, same over here, Ken. It really is the same over here. I think if you read the news and you go by what they're saying, you'd be led to believe that we're the most divided we've ever been. And in many cases, perhaps both of our countries are right now the most divided they've ever been, certainly in, in my and maybe your lifetimes. But it's, as you say, it is warped and exaggerated. And just as a sort of side note to all of this is one thing I've always loved about the drop kicks is it's never been about left or right. It's about people. That's the politics which matter right. to you guys. And, and I'm very much the same, you know, it's who are you in your heart and let's yeah. get together. Let's find common ground. And someone said, what do you think of Biden's policies? And so I said, listen, I'll tell you what I think. I think he has some decency in a heart. You know what I mean? I think he cares about people. You know, what am I ready to, 
say that he's, you know, that he couldn't betray us or, yeah, I mean, I don't trust any politician really, but the other guy had no heart, didn't care about anybody but himself and, you know, selflessness, you know, caring about others and selflessness, you know, that everything's going to be okay if there's a little bit of that going around, you know? Well, you guys have always done so much charitable work and, you know, amazing uh, awareness raising and and donating. And um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the fund. Is it the Cladder Fund? Yeah, Cladder Fund, which, you know, from the Cladder Ring, you know, being the symbol of the Cladder Ring is friendship, love, and loyalty. And we thought that that was was a good symbol for a charitable organization. And, um, you know, the band's always been involved in kind of local causes, but about 12 or 13 years ago, we started our own foundation in hopes that it would really kind of inspire the fan base to come along with us and do more. And it absolutely has. We've, I don't know what the number is now, but we've raised millions and millions and millions of dollars, which is crazy for a punk band because, you know, it's just crazy, but it's like, uh, people have been awesome and they've been supportive and, you know, it's not always about giving people have also volunteered their time. Like when we do, you know, charity events, we have so many great volunteers we have people that we've sent away for substance abuse treatment that have got sober and then they come back out and volunteer at events to give back for what we gave them financially to go. And uh, that's some cool shit right there, you know? And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how we got into that, but it gets back to making a selfish, what I what I always thought of as, you know, playing music had a selfish side to it. And I feel like it, uh, once again, makes you feel like you have a real job, a worthwhile thing you're involved in as opposed to just, you know, off playing your guitar, you know, so. Well, what it also shows, Ken, is that music really can change the world for the better, not in some lofty, romantic, abstract way, but just by getting amongst it, getting your hands dirty, bringing people together. Um, I love it. And it's it's something, you know, I know you don't do it for that at all, but it's something in your heart I hope that you guys are all proud of. And um, yeah, it's an, it's an inspiring thing to see. And uh, I want to just finish with the song that you um, played the other night which is off the new album and as soon as i heard it i was like that's an instant new favorite song i even messaged al and said as much um queen of suffolk county mm-hmm. a beautiful song um i wonder if you could shed some light on, on that song what it's about and just the sonics of it as well it has so much heart and spirit it's a really engaging and affecting song sure so um Suffolk County is what Boston is in Suffolk County. And so uh, um, it was just kind of a throwback to some of the women that I grew up around who would could be <laughs> beautiful and feminine, but at the same time had this edge to them that kind of like goes in line with City by the Sea, which just, man, I don't, I don't find that in a lot of people around the world. And it was a love-hate thing. It's like, man. These, these girls are crazy, but I love it, you know, and, uh, and, you know, it was just like a look back to, um, it was just, I don't know, for me, like writing songs like that, it brings me back to a lot of fun and crazy memories of like, for me, the 1980s, the 1980s were a wild decade, you know, for me. And, uh, and it was just kind of reminiscent about that. And we're doing a video and, um, I asked a bunch of like the, 
girls I grew up with to like find me old photos. And so this video has all these old photos of like, you know, these girls from the eighties that one minute, you know, might, you know, be a sweet girl. The next minute might stick a knife in your back. So, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I don't know the song. It's just, it, it, I, I, I love how we've taken a lot of the songs on this album and, um, you know, we talk about how uplifting and everything is. Well, the lyrics to the song really aren't up, the, the sentiment isn't, but we've kind of, whether it's middle finger, this, you know, made something that's kind of like a hotter edged uh, subject matter and, and framed it in a way where it's fun, you know. And that's why the album's so good is because it's a good time album, but it has substance. You know, yeah. and it hit, it hits you, and uh, it reminds me of the women you see. And my only reference point is the movie The Fighter, and he's got all his sisters. There's about five yeah, of them. She's wild, ma. She's an MTV girl. What does that mean? It means you're wild. <laughs> Mickey's Mickey's sisters sum up the song. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you've got a song in that film, haven't you? As well as obviously The Departed, isn't one of your tunes in The Fighter as well? For I a brief so. moment, I think so. Um, should be if it isn't. I don't know. I forget. But um, you know, Mickey's a dear friend of ours, and it was very cool to see his story. You know, get made. It's an amazing movie. What about um, Whitey Bulger? He, there was a recent movie with Johnny Depp about him. Um, is yeah, he? A... That movie sucked. Yeah. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't dig that one. I didn't think that was a good movie. No. No. Um, yeah. No. I. I don't know. I don't. You know, Bulger's like, and. His, his niece lives around the corner from me, you know, I'm friendly with the family. There's a, it's a great family. You know, it's like he get, I don't like to talk about him too much because I am friendly with a lot of his relatives. And, and I will say that like, it's a brilliant family, like a lot of like Whitey's um, brother, you know, was a, was a tremendous politician and all his kids are so educated. I'll play, play instruments. And then they're, grandkids who some of them play with my kids are like, you know, off at Harvard and go. So it's like the taint when you say Whitey Bulger um, and there's a great legacy of that, of the other people with that same last name. So I try to stay away from that subject, you know? Well, there's more to it than meets the eye as with Boston as, as a whole, right? It seems yeah. like. Well, they, they, yeah, there's a family that encompasses it all in one, I guess, you know? Ken, thanks for a great chat, mate. I've I've really enjoyed talking to you, and um, I can't wait to see you guys. Are you going to be coming over here soon? Are there plans? Man, keep getting those shots in the arm over there, so we can, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, man, I look I look forward to those days. So, yeah, it's going to be good, and uh, I feel like it's coming. I feel like spring's in the air. Everything's moving in the right direction. There's there's hope on the horizon and uh you've got the perfect soundtrack for it with this new record i love it i appreciate appreciate your support cheers ken thank you Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.